places. Um, and in many of those places, I have, I have encountered uh, pressure, different kinds of pressure uh, on me personally, on my colleagues, and on the institutions that I represent. In some, of, in some places, the pressure was expected, um, and I could prepare for it. Um, in much of the Middle East, uh, even now, when I travel to places in the Middle East, I expect uh, a certain amount of pressure, either uh, exerted on me directly, or the people that I'm going to meet, or on my translator, my local guide or fixer. Um, pressure is either implied or applied um, at times. In other places that I've worked in, uh, the pressure has been more of a surprise. And I'm sorry to say that these days, such surprises have become uh, less surprising, uh, more commonplace. Um, you spoke of what we were seeing happen in Australia. Australia is one of the places where, very briefly, I, I worked. When I worked at Time Magazine, um, I was an editor for a time based in the Asian edition of Time, which was in Hong Kong. We had an Australian edition based in Sydney, and a couple of times, uh, to my great pleasure, I was able to go to Sydney and work from the office there. Uh, and the idea, we're talking about the late 90s, early 2000s, and if you had told me then that uh, authorities in Australia would be raiding the offices of a news organization going through its, uh, its materials and information and threatening its journalists, I would have laughed you out of the room. And, uh, and yet, this is, this is the, this is, it's hard to step away from the fact that this is the truth of our time. Um, pressures on newsroom vary in their nature, both in, in terms of what kinds of pressure uh, are, um, are brought to bear, but also the sources of the pressure and the nature of it. Um, the, how, to how to protect your newsroom from that kind of pressure will obviously depend on the kind of pressure that you, you get. And I, I, I don't know that there is necessarily a one-size-fits-all uh, set of principles or practices that you can apply to your newsrooms and say that will somehow insulate you from the pressures that are unique in your countries. Maybe in a Q&A session, we can uh, parse that a little bit and talk about your personal experiences and anxieties. Um, to, in my experience, if there is one through line for the kinds of pressure that are brought upon a newsroom, the through line is economics. Um, the pressures can be political, that's the type that gets the most attention, obviously. Um, the pressures can also be financial. Uh, the pressures can now more and more than before be physical. But at the root of a lot of this is the economics of our business. And many of the original sins that have brought us to this place were, were uh, took place or were committed by our grandfathers when they decided in their altruistic best instincts that journalism or the product of journalism should be as close to free as possible. That, that journalism and news should be cheap uh, and if possible free. 
And of course, um, intellectually and emotionally, we can all, I think, agree that that was the right call to make. But so many of the problems we face today are the direct result of that call. And um, historical counterfactuals, to the extent that they are useful at all, uh, it's worth thinking at some point, maybe not today, how things might have gone differently if they had taken a different view, if they had placed more value uh, on the work we do and charged more value and therefore created a, a created a perception among the consumers of news that news is something that ought to be, that is valuable and that ought to be paid for uh, more than news. Um, since the, the, my most recent um, exposure to pressures on the newsroom came at the Hindustan Times, um, let me talk a little bit more about that. I started my career in journalism, as Meera said, in India um, as a 17-year-old straight out of high school in a small town, small town by Indian standards, a million people, um, <laughs> uh, in, in southeastern India. And uh, then I got a chance to work in the big cities, Kolkata, Bombay, New Delhi. But I was in sort of, when I left uh, India, I was a, I would say, middle to upper management of a business magazine. I was never directly exposed to the pressures that the, the higher life forms in the magazine had to endure. Uh, and, and so I hear stories every now and again, but never really personally experienced them. I could understand intellectually that that was applying, that was happening, but my bosses, thankfully for me, did a very good job of protecting the newsrooms in which I was a part from direct pressure. But I went back to India, it had been 20 some years, and now I was the editor-in-chief. And this is the biggest newspaper, Hindustan Times, in New Delhi, uh, one of the biggest in the country, um, with a subscription base of a million and a quarter. Uh, a gigantic newspaper with a rich history. It was about 95 years old, um, long tradition uh, before India's independence of being a voice uh, for independence. Um, Mahatma Gandhi's, uh, uh, Mahatma Gandhi wrote a column for it. His, um, son, his son had been an editor for a time of the paper. So it is a paper with a, with a story, uh, history of its own. It had been owned by one family for three generations. Um, and, and it still is. And I had, um, I knew that in this role I, there would be much more pressure than I had ever encountered before. Um, I guess I was also to some degree spoiled, if you like, because of having spent a lot of time outside of India, specifically in large American media organizations, Time Magazine, then uh, Quartz, which is owned by the Atlantic Group. Um, even though I was in positions of, uh, of authority and, and responsibility, there was very little pressure on the newsroom. There's very little attempt to guide the, uh, from outside, to guide the way I thought and to make me see things in one way or the other. Uh, almost not. And so to go from there to go uh, to the Hindustan Times was I knew, I knew going in 
that I was taking a, a leap into the into the deep end. Um, even so, and I was warned both by my employers uh, to, to look out for that and by other friends in journalism, people who, uh, like me, had gone back to India uh, and, and tried to make a fist of, of working there. So I, I went in well advised. Uh, I had no one to blame but myself. Um, but I did not anticipate the, the extent of the pressure. And now looking back, I realize, and to come back to the point I was making at the start, that a lot of this comes down to the economics of newspapers in India. The Hindustan Times sells on the newsstand for five rupees. Five rupees fifty, but let's say five rupees. And five rupees is um, maybe eight cents, eight, eight American cents. <coughs> um, in India, you can buy cigarettes buy a single stick. You go to in shops on the street, you can buy a single stick. You don't have to buy the full packet. You can buy a single stick. <coughs> a very popular brand of cigarette is the Wills Navy Cut, which is a sort of middle-priced filter cigarette. I used to smoke it when I smoked uh, as a kid. Um, a single stick of Wills Navy Cut is worth more than the Hindustan Times. Um, is worth more than any Indian newspaper. You know, sometimes it's a premium product. It's an English language, big city newspaper. Most newspapers in small towns in the local languages sell for less than five rupees. In fact, very few newspapers that sell for more than five rupees. But a full newspaper, full price, not if you subscribe to it, you get it for half that price. But the full price newspaper on the newsstand is worth <coughs> less than you would pay for a single stick of a middle-priced cigarette that you could buy usually from the same newsstand. And this is a serious problem. Almost everything in the 20 years that I had left, that I had been outside, 27 years that I had been outside of India, everything else had more than doubled in price. Doubled, trebled, quadrupled, everything. A bottle of water, uh, um, a can of Coca-Cola, um, a plate of biryani at a local local restaurant. Everything, the price had gone up four, five, six times in those 20 years. Newspaper prices had not. Uh, in fact, if you had adjusted for the, the decline of the, the rupee in that time, newspaper prices had less than halved, more than halved in price. So the newspaper was actually, in, in real terms, even cheaper when I, when I returned to India than it had been when I left India. And this was happening at the very same time when Indians had become wealthier as a country, and that India had gone from being a poor country to a much more a middle-class country. And the kinds of people who, read, who could read English, uh, who would therefore buy English-language newspapers, their incomes had gone up many, many times in that period. It made no sense for the newspapers to remain so cheap. And there was a consequence to it. Because the paper was so cheap, it depended entirely the economics of the newspaper depended entirely on advertising. And time. Uh, the paper was being sold, sold five rupees to, uh, per paper. Most of the uh, people who bought the paper would have bought a monthly subscription. They would pay something like three rupees, sometimes two rupees. Um, it would cost. I, I once asked the, the, the publishing head of the paper how much it cost 
physically to produce that paper, and he said, mm, 12 rupees, 13 rupees. So, you know, five times the price that an average subscriber paid for it, more than twice the time that a newsstand buyer would pay for the newspaper. So, why was the price put up? Because for too long, um, and still now, the economics depended on advertising. If you wanted to charge top dollar for the advertising, you needed to show a large subscription base. And the large subscription base was only possible, or so people thought, still think, that you can only get a large subscription base, subscription base by keeping the price low. If you raise the price, the fear is, you raise the price, your subscription base will reduce. If your subscription base reduces, you will no longer be able to charge top dollar for your advertising, for your ads, and your ad revenue will therefore fall. This is the model. But if you depend on advertising, then you depend on two things. In India, the government is the single largest advertiser in most newspapers. Between the central government, state government, city government, uh, government-owned uh, public sector enterprises, these collectively um, are the biggest advertiser in newspapers. Um, if you open an Indian newspaper, page after page is made up of government tenders, cleaning up a drain somewhere, or building a road somewhere, or you know some of the more horrific things you will see in Indian papers is photographs of dead people, uh, people who've been whose bodies have been found in the street. Do you know this person? You know, uh, for some reason those papers were, were those ads were even appearing in the edition of the newspapers that we sold to school children in schools. It's gruesome. That was the economics. You needed those ads. Otherwise, you couldn't run your newspaper. Um, so you became very vulnerable to pressure from government. Um, you also became very vulnerable to pressure from private sector advertisers, obviously. If you depend on advertisers, then your big advertisers uh, have, the, have a lever that they can use uh, to bring pressure upon you. Um, political pressure, if we sort of isolate the different kinds of pressure, we just talk about political pressure. Political pressure on Indian newspapers has, all, has existed for a very long time. Governments have different levers. The first lever is that they are the biggest advertiser. And they can turn up or turn down the dial uh, almost at will. The process by which the government decides who gets how much advertising is should be transparent, isn't always transparent. Um, sometimes the, the process by which central government advertising is allocated is predictable, but state governments, public sector, corporations, that's less clear. Um, there are too many Because government advertising is such a large part, it becomes an incentive for all kinds of people to create small newspapers that exist for no real reason. They're not serving any purpose except to get a piece of the government advertising pie. Um, so New Delhi has more English language newspapers than London, or New York, or Washington, or more English language newspapers than London plus New York plus Washington plus LA plus San Francisco uh, plus, uh, uh, what's the second biggest city? Plus Manchester. New Delhi has, by my count, and I'm probably understating this, at least 
25 English language papers. Uh, the vast majority of these papers are, as you'd expect, tiny, read by, or read by is an overstatement, uh, supply to a few hundred or a few thousand people. Um, but they're there because they can hoover up a little piece of government advertising, just enough to keep them going. Sometimes they're there so that the owners can, can have a voice, or at least claim to have some sort of a voice uh, in the city. The big papers are more vulnerable because they have large circulation. So as I said, if the paper is selling for a fraction of the manufacturing cost, it follows that the more papers you sell, the more you need to earn in advertising in order to keep your business alive. Because every paper you sell, you're selling at less than the manufacturing cost. Right? So you need to sell that many more papers in order to stay afloat. If the government is your largest advertiser, that gives them one lever of power. The second lever of power is that most Indian newspapers are owned by business families that have many other businesses. They have conglomerates. Um, they may have interests in, in um, you know, cement, in fertilizer, in chemicals, in food products, in, uh, in automobiles, all kinds of things. In many of those other businesses, they might be dependent on the government one fraction or the other. The government may be your major buyer. Let's say you are in fertilizer. The government may be your single largest buyer. Or the government may be your biggest supplier of uh, some raw material. Or the public sector may be your biggest supplier if you're in steel in, or in products that require steel. Public sector is a, is a major provider of steel. So you're vulnerable to pressure, indirect pressure on your other businesses. <coughs> the government can say to you directly or by implication, <coughs> if your newspaper makes trouble for us, then your other businesses might suffer. So that there's a very strong um, potential for blackmail, if you like, that the government enjoys. The third lever, and this is not something that the government directly controls, but it is nonetheless true, which is that the private sector advertiser in India is spineless. Indian companies, over decades and decades of tradition that continues to linger today, simply tend to follow whatever the government, uh, the view that the government takes on towards various news organizations. So if your newspaper is, is thought of as being anti-government, critical of the government in any way, then private sector advertisers can get nervous about your, about advertising in your paper, because they may, they may wonder if by advertising in your paper, they might offend the government. So I would have the head of uh, advertising at the paper come to me and say, such and such private company uh, is getting nervous uh, about advertising with us because they think that they're hearing that the government is unhappy with us. Uh, and to my horror, sometimes um, I would be told that international, multinational companies were taking the same view. Um, this was a very, very rude shock to me. I had not expected this. Most of the other things I had anticipated 
I might not have anticipated the, the extent or the depth of the problem, but the absolute absence of um, spying on the part of the private sector was a bit of a shock to me. Because what I would often say when I, when I spoke in India was, look, I come now from the United States. And in the United States, you have um, Donald Trump, who has a very negative impression of, let's say, the New York Times. But it would never occur, at least let's hope not, <laughs> to the White House to pick up the phone and call Coca-Cola company and say to them that we don't like the New York Times and we'd like you to stop advertising in the New York Times. Nor would Coca-Cola come to this decision by itself. Oh, the Times is anti-Trump and therefore we should. Let's set aside Coca-Cola company. Let's look at the Koch brothers, who are, if you don't know very well, the American billionaires who are major uh, donors to the Republican Party uh, as well as to Trump uh, presidential uh, campaign last time around. It would not occur to the Koch brothers who believe in Trump and believe in the causes that he espouses, or maybe it's the other way around, but it would not occur to the Koch brothers to take their ads off the New York Times because it is perceived as being anti-Trump. Because they place their ads in the New York Times purely for commercial reasons. They place their ads if they do in the New York Times because they believe that the maximum number of people will see those ads and it will serve their business interests to do so. If somebody in the White House had the temerity to pick up the phone, call up the Koch brothers and say, we'd like you to stop advertising in the New York Times, he would be told where to get off. He'd be told that, you know, when, when the time comes, we will be very happy to contribute to the president's re-election campaign, but don't tell us how to run our business. We decide, and we alone decide, where we put our ads. That, I discovered, was not always the case with the private sector in India. And that was a shock to me. Um, that was a lever of power that I had not anticipated. On top of this, of course, with some political parties, there's also another lever of this, physical intimidation. This happens less often with major Indian English language newspapers, but it's not uncommon with smaller, small town, uh, local language newspapers. Uh, one of the reasons why India ranks so poorly in the, in the Freedom Index is that it's um, in, in smaller towns outside of your Delhi, Bombay, Calcutta, Madras, in smaller towns, journalists um, face enormous intimidation. They're beaten up, very frequently killed um, for the journalism they do by local uh, business interests, local criminal interests, and local political interests. And this doesn't get the attention that it should, even within India, never mind outside the country. Um, so these are the different levers that, that uh, can be brought to bear. Now, historically, different political parties in power in India at different times have used these levers with varying degrees of skill and enthusiasm. Um, the Congress Party, <coughs> particularly during a brief period in the 1970s when Indira Gandhi applied uh, emergency uh, rule in India, the Congress Party was able to, and 
did use these methods itself. Um, but as I was told by, by people who had endured many years of this, this particular government now uses these, this power more efficiently and more enthusiastically than ever before. And it also uses this, it, it goes straight to the highest use of the power. Previously, as I, as I was told, you could, you, could, you could do a series of, let's say, investigative stories about um, the government of one state, and the central government would not bother you. You might upset the government of that state, and that state may stop advertising in your paper um, until that government was overthrown and the opposition party came to power, and then they would give you hands again. But other states would not boycott you. The central government would not boycott you, even if the same party was in power, both at the center and at that state. But with this government, this political party, um, that distinction is not often made. Sometimes you can, you can give offense to somebody lower down the uh, pecking order, but it would immediately be reported right up the chain of command uh, and then a, uh, an order would go across the board to different institutions and you would get pressure from everywhere. Um, I'm told, I don't know because I was not an editor in the previous government, I'm told that this is quite unique, uh, that the BJP government uh, is, is, is more, exercises the nuclear option more than any other government that has done before. Um, and I know from personal experience that I would get phone calls uh, from very senior figures in the government for the most bizarre and um, what I would consider the most innocuous um, stories um, that I would not even have thought as being particularly critical of the government. Um, because there's also usually governments like this which are sort of hyper-nationalistic as well as sort of religiously <coughs> Um, they can also operate uh, with a very high degree of paranoia. And so they are almost predisposed to take offense, even when offense is not intended, or in fact, even when offense is not being given. So you have an additional problem. Not only do you have to worry if you want to, not only do you have to worry about giving offense, but you have to worry about people assuming you are giving offense when that is not your intention. I will give you an example. Um, when I was editing the Hindustan Times, we there was a there was a rail accident that took place. The train was derailed in Uttar Pradesh, I think. Um, several compartments were overturned. A few people died. Um, I think the accident took place late at night or in the early hours of the morning. Um, the villagers, the nearby villages, rushed to the to the scene and helped with the rescue. Uh, we were able to rush a bunch of reporters to the scene, and we did a lot of stories, particularly online. We did lots of stories online about uh, the various stories. I mean, you do 20 stories about, sometimes you're doing stories about one survivor tells, you know, it's a, it's a bit like almost tabloid in its nature. One survivor tells an amazing story of the survivor. 
one story that came in, and it had escaped my attention because I published hundreds of stories, um, but it went into uh, went online. Was the story of one woman who was rescued? She was caught. Uh, she was trapped in a in a compartment that had overturned. And the local villagers, uh, it was I think a majority Muslim village, that had gone into the compartment and used crowbars or something like that and had rescued her. And the quote she gave our reporter was, "I was so surprised that the Muslims came and helped." Uh, it was not a politically correct quote, but it was what she genuinely said. And you know, who am I to comment on her on her uh, being genuinely surprised? Um, where I think we made a mistake was that we made that quote the header, uh, which I think was a very bad call, because the implication was that somehow it's surprising that Muslims should help anonymous which is a terrible idea and wrong. The complaint I got from the minister, however, was interesting. What she said to me is that this is an anti-BJP story. I said, I different spaces, I said, how is this an anti-BJP story? And she said, well, you're implying that a Hindu would not have saved this woman. <laughs> so, this is my point. That even when you're giving offense to the other side, <laughs> in, in their idea of the other side, I would not have been surprised if a leader of the Muslim community called me and said, this is an offensive heading. Had they done so, I would have apologized and I would have agreed with them. But I'm having these people assume an offense that by no rational reckoning exists. This is from a minister <coughs> of realm. Um, another example while I was there, and then I'll open up the questions. Another example was the, while I was editor, the India's largest state, Uttar Pradesh, uh, had an election, a state level election. It's a gigantic state, 200 million people. It's bigger than most countries. Um, hell is bigger than some continents. Um, so, we're doing, it's, it's a big, big election. We did lots of stories about it. I had a weekly column. In one of my columns, I wrote that there's something fundamentally wrong with having a state this large. Uttar Pradesh also notoriously gets, has very poor governance. And all government indicators, indicators of governance is done very poorly. And I said, well, that's to be expected. It's too large. It's too large a state to be run by a single state administration. The only logical thing to do would be to break it up into multiple states which, with administrations, separate state administrations, which cater to a smaller group of people. So what I proposed, and this was not a, this was, I, I was reviving a proposal that had been made before, of breaking it into four states. And I, was, I pointed out that this had been tried in some other Indian states, including the state that I had grown up as a child, which had been broken into two. And the jury was out, the process was still ongoing, but those states had a better chance of getting good governance because they were smaller and more easily managed than this gigantic thing And I thought this was a perfectly rational argument, and I put it out there. And I get a call a couple of days later um, from someone very high up in government to say, oh, that is an anti-BGP uh, call. And I said, why so? He says, well, because if you carved Uttar Pradesh into four, almost necessarily one of those four states would become a Muslim majority state. 
Therefore, your proposal is pro-Muslim. If your proposal is pro-Muslim, ipso facto, it is anti-BGP. Again, the ability to take offense, I'm sorry, because I'm in Oxford somehow, I feel like I should quote the Latin, but um, that is why it becomes almost impossible because you don't know when you're giving offense and you, I have no problem giving offense, but I, 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 when, when I'm giving offense, I'm usually prepared with a defense. Um, when it comes to you like this, there's no preparation because it's not rational. It, is, it, is, it comes from cloud cuckoo land. Um, but these are real pressures. And so now imagine the kind of pressure that, that, is, that is applied when you do stories that, that directly criticize the government, <coughs> that show the government and its policies in poor light. And then imagine the rage that that then excites. Uh, among the highest authorities in the country. Now, how to protect your newsroom from any of this? Um, the short answer is, there's not a lot you can do. As editor-in-chief, in the end, given the, the limitations, the only thing I was able to do was to say, everything that appears in the paper, everything that appears online, is my call. And if anybody calls any of my staff to, to complain, you send them to me. And if anybody calls me directly to say, who wrote this story, who wrote that story, my standard answer was, I did. Uh, or who commissioned the story, my standard answer was, I did. Now, I was able to do this because I was an American national. My wife was in, in New York. My, I always knew when I went to the Hindustan Times that this was not a permanent uh, condition, that I would leave and go back home to New York. Um, and so I always had a escape clause, if you like, a, a bolt hole. Um, many of the people who run newspapers in India don't have that luxury. Um, I was saying to Mira before, at lunch, the stories we did, the decisions that I made, I would like to think that I would have made those same decisions had I been an Indian committed to living in India with no escape. I'd like to think that. But if I put my hand to my heart, I don't know that that is necessarily true. If I had no escape, would I have been so bold? I don't know. And which is why I am very respectful of all those editors who don't have the luxury I did. And I tend not to criticize them because I don't know honestly that I would have done differently if I were in their position. And there, but for the grace of uh, circumstance, go on. Um, now, come back to where I started, economics. The solution, as I believed at the Hindustan Times, was to make the Hindustan Times more expensive. To start, because advertising revenue is falling in India. 
newspaper circulation is flat or actually in some cases growing. As more and more Indians become educated, more and more Indians become come to the middle class, can afford to buy newspapers or want to buy newspapers. Um, in fact, quite a lot of Indians are, are buying, are switching from language newspapers to English newspapers because to many of them it is an affirmation of arrival. They've, they've reached a certain social class that they're reading English papers and not, say, Hindi papers. And they, they like that. It makes them feel better about themselves. And they want their neighbors to know, oh, you're buying English papers now, I see. Huh? Yeah. There's a little bit of that. So, new, and newspapers cost nothing. Your monthly newspapers bill, your monthly newspaper bill is lower than your monthly water bill, your monthly gas bill, your monthly bread bill, your monthly uh, milk bill. There is no commodity that you consume every month that is more expensive, that is cheaper than your newspaper bill. So why not? It makes almost no difference. It's a rounding error in most people's monthly budget. So they buy newspapers. So newspaper sales are robust in India, but advertising is falling. Advertising is falling because advertisers have realized most people buy newspapers and don't read them. I had this moment of clarity. In India, people buy newspapers and don't throw them away. They stack them up, and at the end of the month or every two months, they sell the newspapers. There's a guy who comes with a cart to buy newspapers, which he then recycles into packaging for food, or, you know, street side snacks, and things like that, or turn into paper pulp. So, so you sell papers. So not only are you paying next to nothing for your paper, you're actually getting some of that money back because you sell them. Anyway, I had a moment of clarity about a couple of months after I moved to Delhi. I was walking um, early one morning in my neighborhood, and I see a guy with this car. <coughs> and I say, what do you have? He said, oh, I'm in newspapers. I, I'm buying newspapers. And he had a tarpaulin over it. And I said, we had a little conversation. I said, can I see? And so he pulled the tarpaulin out, and I saw stacks of newspapers. And it was instantly clear to me that the vast majority of those newspapers had never been opened. They were crisp newspapers. So a lot of people buy newspapers and don't open them. Or they take the newspapers are sold and they, they take the, the main paper, toss it away, and they, they take the section which is, has Bollywood news or you know, stuff like that and they look at that. Or they take the section that has um, advertising and discount coupons and things like that. Don't read the main paper. Advertisers know this, they're not fools. So a lot of advertising is moving away from newspapers and into everywhere else, to your, mostly to uh, cell phones, to YouTube, to Facebook, Facebook, um, Twitter, YouTube. The, the numbers for India are phenomenal. I think India is the second largest, maybe already largest market for Facebook in the world. Um, if you're an advertiser, why would you advertise in newspapers when you can advertise for much less money, more effectively, on digital platforms. That's where money is going. So in the West, newspaper circulations have been declining for a very long time. Advertising was steady and then began to decline. And now both are showing a downward turn. In India, newspaper circulation is straight or rising a little bit, but advertising is falling. Now, when these two lines meet, and they will meet pretty soon, whether it's two years, three years, five years from now, they will meet. When they meet, the newspaper circulation will go off the side of the cliff. <coughs> they will not fall slowly, they'll just collapse. Because the business model will have died. So I said to the folks at Hindu Sun Times, we've got to change this. We've got to change the business model. 
over a period of time, we've got to learn how to extract more value from what we do, <coughs> which is news. Not from advertisers, but from the consumers of news. Um, how do you do that? You can't take what you're, what you're already producing and giving away for five rupees and ask people to pay 10 rupees. That's not going to happen. Why should people pay 10 rupees for something that you've been giving them for five rupees for all these years? And your competition is also giving them for five rupees. You have, the, you have to earn the right to charge more. So I said, we'll have to change the way we do journalism. We have to provide a kind of journalism in the Hindustan Times that's not available anywhere else, which will give us then the right to charge more. Deeper investigations, more thorough reporting, more brave, um, more, more courageous journalism, um, asking tough questions, uh, proposing answers and solutions to serious problems in a country the size of India has. Only when we produce that kind of journalism and when we become recognizable, recognized for that kind of journalism, will we have earned the right to say to people, look, we, can, we need to charge more because we're giving you more than the Times of India, the Hindu, the Indian Express. We're giving you much more than everybody else. You should pay us more for it. So that was the general idea. That's the kind of that's why we were trying to do, apart from perfectly sound journalistic reasons, that was the reason we were trying to do the kind of journalism that we were doing. Um, unfortunately, like we said, this is a government that is very uh, ruthless about exercising the levers that it enjoyed. Uh, and so those levers were exercised. Uh, the owners of the newspaper could not withstand the pressures uh, that they faced. Uh, and so we were not able to complete the project that, that we started, um, which is a shame. And, and, and I'm, I'm personally um, obviously deeply unhappy, deeply dissatisfied with leaving the project uh, unfinished, um, and I'm of course very, very disappointed for all the colleagues that I, that I encouraged to to try out these bolder, braver forms of journalism, and I'm worried about them and their future in a, in a country where they don't have those protections. Um, but I don't really know the answer to how to protect the Hindustan Times newsroom from oppression. There are other newsrooms thankfully, that are now coming up in India, in the digital space, um, that do not depend so heavily on advertising, and are not owned by large conglomerates, and therefore not susceptible to pressure on their other businesses. These are all in the digital space. Their operating costs are low. Um, they are, um, they've been quite successful um, in getting interesting, bold, relevant journalism. So there are you know, websites like scroll.in, <coughs> thewire.in, uh, India Spend, to some degree the print. Um, these are all um, publications that have popped up in the last five, six, seven years in response to the need for good journalism. Um, their editors have done a much better job of protecting their journalists and their newsrooms from these pressures. Um, but 
I'm not clear what that business model is. Uh, I'm not clear how long they can sustain this business model. The Wire, uh, for instance, is a not-for-profit uh, news organization that depends on funding from philanthropies. Um, if the government begins to apply pressure to those philanthropies, will those philanthropies hold their nerve? I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I have a suspicion that we will find out very soon. Um, Scroll, which is a very, very good uh, news organization, is coming under a lot of financial pressure. Um, I noticed last week that they laid a few people off. That's the first time I've heard of a digital publication that's laying people off. It's a bad sign. Uh, there's also some really interesting experimentation taking place in India. Uh, one is, uh, is a news site called The Ken, which um, it's The Ken. And The Ken uh, has an interesting subscription-only model. They charge, by Indian standards, quite a high price for subscriptions. And they give you one story a day, just one. And you can only access the story if you're a subscriber. But it's a specialized product. The Ken caters to the startup, you know to say? To the startup. Yeah. So, but primarily they're aimed at, at uh, digital, uh, new um, digital, uh, the new digital economy, at startups and so on. And those who are interested in that space will pay uh, the extra to get that journalism. Uh, I don't know that you can do the same thing with general purpose journalism, political journalism, but that is at least one way to protect um, their journalism against <coughs> the pressure of advertisements. Um, so that's something that I pay close attention to. I'd like to see the can succeed. Okay. Um, anyway, so I, I think I rambled on much longer than I thought I would. I am already tired of the sound of my own voice. Um, so I, I, you know, let's let's make this more question answers. Let me uh, tell me what uh, what you want to know. I'll try to give you the best answers I can. Thank you very much, Bobby. It's really, really good. Um, really good.